So we have a special guest with us this morning, and uh, one of the things we hope to do from time to time is just be able to hear from other uh, godly men, other teachers, other pastors who can just bring a different perspective to us. And so we are very excited today to have uh, Dr. Tim Sigler of uh, Shepherd's Theological Seminary. And uh, so Shepherd's Theological Seminary is the school uh, that we've connected with to have, we've, we have the class right now on Monday nights and we're hoping to go beyond that. Uh, Dr. Sigler is actually teaching the hermeneutics class that we are, uh, that we're having there and he'll, he'll be here live uh, tomorrow night. So he'll be teaching the class from here tomorrow night. So uh, Dr. Sigler, uh, it has been at Shepherds uh, for several years now. He came from Moody Bible Institute, um, where I think he was a professor there for 18 years. Uh, I did a little time at Moody Bible Institute myself, two or three <clears throat> semesters there back in the early 90s. So turns out we've, we're discovering we have some things in common from our time uh, up in Chicago area. And uh, he, got, he did his, his uh, graduate, postgraduate work at Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School, yeah, uh, that's right. Ted's, up mm -hmm. in uh, Deerfield, uh, just north of Chicago. So I'll let him uh, tell you more about himself, but uh, would you please welcome him this morning? So. Thank you. Actually, is this where I'm going to sit? Well, it is a privilege to be with you this morning and to share from God's Word. I'll be inviting you in a moment to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Leviticus. It's one of the first ones as you open uh, your Bibles, and yet not often do people uh, turn there on a Sunday morning. I'd like to give you greetings from Shepherd's Theological Seminary and the several folks that you probably know from there, not the least of which might be your pastor's father-in-law, Dr. Bookman, and also Dr. Al Potter, whom I believe has been a guest at your uh, congregation here. It's a privilege to be a seminary for the local church, in the local church, and your church is one that is now developing a wonderful relationship with shepherds, and we're seeing some of your church members uh, be a part of our seminary classes, and we're so grateful to be able to make those available to you. Again, I, it's a privilege to be here with my wife, Bernice, and to uh, serve as a family at Shepherd's Seminary. But I'd like to turn your attention this morning, as I said, to the book of Leviticus, and chapter 23 of the book of Leviticus, in particular, as Leviticus chapter 23 represents what some have called the feast chapter of the Bible. Perhaps you've heard of some of the feasts that God has given to the nation of Israel, uh, to the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai as he was giving his law and the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And you may see these even on modern calendars as the Jewish community, and I understand your church is kind of located in a uh, densely populated area where uh, you have a concentration of Jewish members of your community. In fact, one of our faculty members, Dr. Barber, his wife grew up here in Savannah, and her 
family members have a connection to Mikvah Israel Synagogue. So uh, you may be seeing members of the Jewish community this week uh, building little booths called sukkahs or sukkot, tabernacles, if you will, these uh, small little tent-like structures in their yards or on a balcony even, and uh, often with leafy plants for the roof so that they can look through and see the stars at night. Uh, this is to remind the Jewish community that on one occasion, a very significant occasion, for about 40 years in the wilderness, they did not have a permanent place. And yet, God provided for them through the wilderness experience. But before this coming Friday night, when the festival of booths, the feast of booths called Sukkot begins, well, we are in this period of the fall feasts of Israel in which this evening begins perhaps what has been called the most holy day on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. And it is that theme that I would like to trace through some scriptures with you this morning to consider just how this day was set apart for Israel so that Israel, which is set apart by God, could be a light to all the nations. This is not simply a throwback to something that was then, uh, something that was for Israel, but is something that God set in order in this specific chapter in which he presents all of these special assemblies for the Israelites to come before him and to meet with him. But that provided a pattern that we see worked out throughout Scripture and God's redemptive plan so that he is teaching the Israelites truths about himself, himself that then could be taught to all the families of the earth. In fact, that's exactly what God said in Genesis chapter 12 when he called Abraham. He didn't say, Abraham, I love you and only you and your descendants after you. No, he said, Abram, I'm going to call you, I'm going to bless you so that through you, all the families of the earth may be blessed. We eventually learn from the New Covenant Scriptures, from the New Testament, even in the first verse of the New Testament, where you read Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, and it is through Jesus that all the families of the earth can be blessed. It is this theme that I would like to focus then upon as we look at this feast chapter of the Bible, really for the one in the seven in this list that is uh, covered here from Passover and the feast of first fruits, the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of weeks, the feast of trumpets, and eventually the feast of booths, that there's one of these in here that is not a feast at all. In fact, it is noted as a fast. And it is this day of atonement in which the Israelites are called to humble themselves on the day of atonement. You will notice that this special day was to take place on the 10th day of the seventh month. And we read about that here in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the 10th day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. 
It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves, or the word is humble yourselves, or it's been understood that if you're to feast and celebrate on the other occasions, but on this occasion you're to afflict yourself, then the opposite of feasting would be fasting. And this is how this has come to be understood that you are to afflict yourselves or fast and present a food offering to the Lord of hosts. So instead of enjoying a fellowship meal with the Lord, which is what many of the other sacrifices allowed, you bring your offering, your animal, and it is roasted on the altar and then it is enjoyed by the offerer as a fellowship meal with the Lord. No, on this day, it's a food offering to the Lord and this becomes a whole burnt offering. In other words, it's completely consumed and goes only to God. Further, we read, and you shall not do any work on that very day for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on this very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. Notice the repetition here. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening. From evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. Now, in light of this passage, and in light of the fact that this evening is on the Jewish calendar, and has been for, like, since 1400 B.C., the ninth day of the tenth month, I thought, how could I get away from speaking on any other subject? I mean, God gave the Israelites this special day, and I was invited on this special day to share in your congregation, and I think, I wonder, you know, we could talk about what you're dealing with and what I'm dealing with, what we're facing in our lives, but I'm thinking up there in the cosmic heavens, what is God thinking about? For thousands of years, he's been working through this calendrical system. He's been doing certain things that matter on this particular set of days. He's been working both with Israel and then through the coming of the Messiah, I guess sidebar for a moment and note that in Jesus' first coming, have you ever noticed that he kept going up to Jerusalem? That you read the gospel accounts and it says, and... There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and, I mean, how many passages begin like that in the Bible? He was not going up to Jerusalem time and time again from the Galilee because he had racked up a bunch of frequent camel miles. I mean, he probably didn't even drink camel mile tea. But, uh, I mean, he, he, he kept going up, thank you, uh, he kept going up to Jerusalem because God had these appointed times in which he commanded worshipers to go up to Jerusalem because that's where he was revealing himself through the place that he had chosen. And it was on this particular day that is set apart from all other days, not as a feast, but as a fast, on this special day of the month. In fact, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, not only went up regularly to Jerusalem, but the key events of redemption 
that relate to the salvation that he purchased for us with his own blood relate often to the feasts that are mentioned in this chapter in Leviticus 23. I mentioned kind of covering a summary of them on the annual cycle of events that beginning in verse 4, we see the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Jesus is singled out by John the baptizer when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, Paul clarifies this even further. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, says that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. He is the one who is without sin. He is the unleavened bread, if you will. Further, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. He, he says it twice, like this might be important. He's underlining, circling, highlighting, bold print. He's the first fruits. Well, guess what the next feast is after he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and he's the unleavened bread. He's also the first fruits of the resurrection. All of these events in the life of Christ in which he is providing our salvation relate to these celebrations for the people of Israel. Further, we read in the book of Acts in chapter 1 that 40 days after his resurrection and how would they have known that it was 40 days? I mean, do you know what you were doing 40 days ago? That this is 40 days after, you know, anything else that you were doing? I don't. I don't keep track like that. I mean, maybe when we were engaged, uh, we said, oh, it's going to be so many days until our wedding or something. Or maybe when we were uh, counting down to a vacation or something, oh, it's only so many days before. But why would the disciples have known that it's 40 days after the resurrection? <laughs> Because in this chapter, they were already told that beginning on the Feast of Firstfruits, early in the spring, in part of the week of unleavened bread and the Passover week, they were to begin counting the Omer period or this period of the sheaf of grain that was waved before the Lord. They were to begin counting from that day for seven weeks. Now, math majors, seven weeks. How many days is that? That's yeah, 49, even, even in Georgia, it's 49 days, right? Uh, it's 49 days. On the next day, you have a huge celebration on the 50th day called Pentecostas, 50 days. The 50-day celebration is still recognized as the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. All of these things relate to what Jesus did in his first coming. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Passover Lamb who's been sacrificed for us. He is unleavened without sin, and he sends his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Further, these feasts go on to outline a plan that very much relate to his second coming. The Feast of Trumpets reminds us of the fact that in the fall of the year, this after a summer growing season, then the trumpet sounds, and we begin in verse, these numbers are awfully small here, but I believe it's verse 23 that you see the Feast of Trumpets uh, being outlined in Leviticus 23, and this reminds us of the fact that what is the signal of his coming? 
I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 reminds us that the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. That he's going to come at the sound of a trumpet. And then the day of atonement speaks of the affliction. This is that saddest and holiest and most serious of the holy days. Not a party celebration, but a purity celebration. And it reminds us of a time of future tribulation that is coming in which God will purify the children of Israel and call them to repentance. And then he will gather all the nations to himself who have outlived this terrible time of tribulation in a feast of booths or a harvest festival, a time in which there is an ingathering of the crops in the fall of the year, but there will ultimately be, Zechariah chapter 14 mentions a time when people from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the Lord at the Feast of Booths and be gathered into his tabernacle. Fast forward to Revelation chapter 21 in which we read that God will cause his tabernacle to be with men. That he will call people from every tribe and tongue and nation to bow before him, to worship him. You see, there is something related to these festivals in which God is thinking about and making plans toward and in which some of them, their teaching moment has been fulfilled and others to which they look forward to what God will do. On this particular day, we're reminded of a number of the <clears throat> commandments related to the Day of Atonement. Perhaps you notice that this is to be a day in which atonement is made. The word atonement comes from a word meaning a covering. Perhaps we're aware of the importance of the face masks and coverings that were using on a daily basis to make sure that we are avoiding endangering others and at least giving the perception that we care about the health of others. But this is a different type of covering. Instead of spreading of a virus, it's a covering to cover the sin of humanity. A covering in which atonement is made so that instead of God with his holy piercing judgment does not see deep into your heart and notice your sin and rebellion against him, but because your sins are covered by the blood of this sacrificial animal, in this instance a goat, not a lamb, he sees the blood and he doesn't see our guilt. Atonement is made. Some have mentioned that you could separate the syllables there and notice that because atonement is made, we have at one meant with God. That he can now fellowship with us because our sin is not separating us from him. And thus, we also see in this passage that not only was there a statement of the value of this passage in that atonement would be made, but there were certain commands that no work would be done at all. 
I mentioned already that the ancient scrolls on which the scriptures were written did not really permit a highlighting or bold print or larger font to emphasize truths, but often would use repetition. And this seems to be a repeated theme in reference to the Day of Atonement. Some famous commentator, I believe, said that this is from the Department of Redundancy Department. Again, you know, it's repeated, repetitively redundant. No work at all. Uh, it's like a Sabbath of Sabbaths. I mean, every Sabbath were, was to come around on Israel's calendar on the seventh day, and no work could be done. But this is a special Sabbath of Sabbaths in which so much no work could be done that there was a prescription against not only the work, but a commandment about if you do any work, then you're in deep trouble. You could be cut off from the entire nation. You have no part with the children of Israel. And therefore, on this day, they were to humble their souls or afflict their souls. And we see it related to fasting today. And finally, another instruction that on this day, it was to be a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord. In other words, this was not the individual worshiper at the temple who was to make an atonement for himself, but this was the high priest who was to go in and make an atonement on behalf of the Israelite. In fact, if we were to summarize what is happening in the passage, we would notice that, and I don't know how to get all of my slides working here. Hmm, that's interesting. Certain points were to come up uh, on this to tell you what's going on. But... Uh, The summary might go something like this, as we've read. You do no work at all. All work is forbidden, verses 30 and 31. You humble and afflict yourself, so it's a day of fasting, not feasting, verse 32. The high priest was actually to go and present an offering. And by the way, this is a colleague of mine. He's standing there with this white robe because this white robe, called a kittel in modern Hebrew parlance, is to remind us the high priest stripped down from his royal robes. I'll show you some artist's conception of what this looked like for a moment. And <clears throat> was to present one goat for a sin offering as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. No one was eating this. Remember, it's not a fellowship offering. This is only to the Lord. And then one goat for a scapegoat who was to go off into the wilderness. And never come back because that goat was bearing the sins of the people and the high priest was to wear this simple white robe symbolizing the purity of God and the humility of the priest I mean think about it normally the high priest's garments that are described were kingly were regal were royal were glorious but on the day of atonement he was to set aside his festive garments and wear only the humble white linen garment on the Day of Atonement. I mentioned that one of the goats was to go off into the wilderness. And there was a tradition from the Talmud, a body of Jewish writings from the 4 to 600s AD, 
which says this about <clears throat> the period of time before the destruction of the temple. Do you know the famous date for the destruction of the temple? Herod's temple, the Romans destroy it in 70 AD. Now just think back. I didn't think this would be one of those math-related sermons, but think back 40 years before the destruction of the temple and think, what's going on round about 30 AD? This Jewish document, this rabbinical set of literature, the Talmud, it's a huge body of literature, like an uh, encyclopedic set of rabbinic commentary, says this about this time period. Our rabbis taught that during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, again in 70 AD, that the lot and they would determine which of those two goats would be sent into the wilderness and then which of the two goats would be offered as a whole burnt offering and they would determine this by casting lots apparently. And by the way, um, Dr. Bookman wrote his dissertation about something related to the Urim and the Thummim and the way that the priests would decide through the casting of lots and so forth. So ask him about this. But from my understanding, essentially it was a way of like rolling the dice or of determining what's in my hand, you know, and you open this hand and, and you get the, okay, this one's going to go out into the wilderness and this one is going to go as a whole burnt offering that for 40 years the particular decision-making piece, stone, dice, whatever it was, um, did not come up in the right hand. And look, if you've only got two hands, you've always got a 50-50 chance, right? But for 40 years, it's like, which one is going to be the whole burnt offering for the Lord? And it would always come up in the left hand for 40 years in a row. Something's off. Like, if, if you're in a contest with someone and it's heads or tails, and every time, for 40 times in a row, they get heads. You need to look at the coin, right? Is this a double-sided heads coin? Yeah, for 40 years in a row, it always came up in the left hand or did not come up in the right hand. And by the way, in these ancient Near Eastern cultures, the left hand, and I say this as a left-handed person myself, that <clears throat> the left hand was more the hand of dishonor and the right hand, the hand of honor. But for 40 years in a row, the sacrifice which the Lord would accept never came up in the right hand. Like something's being communicated through this hand of dishonor. Further, the Talmud says that <clears throat> nor did the crimson color strap become white. This alludes to a tradition that the scapegoat that would go off into the wilderness, and you can read more about this, it gets a whole chapter in Leviticus chapter 16, that this scapegoat that would go off into the wilderness bearing the sins of the people would eventually, as the sacrifice of the whole burnt offering in Jerusalem was being sacrificed, it had this crimson-colored strap around its neck as it went off into the wilderness as the other sacrifice was being accepted by God to make an atonement. That crimson-colored strap would miraculously turn white. But for 40 years, 
it didn't do that. For 40 years after what? Well, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. I hope you can kind of see where this is going. Further, it says, nor did the westernmost light shine. If you recall the layout of the tabernacle, it is an east-west orientation where you're entering from the east and coming in. If you've ever been to Jerusalem and you're standing on the Mount of Olives, you're looking toward the west, toward across the Kidron Valley onto the Temple Mount. And you can imagine where that sealed off door or, or gate is, the golden gate, this beautiful gate, the eastern gate, that people would come in from that direction, from the east going west, and as they would enter, you know, there were these various courts, courts of the Gentiles, courts of the women, courts of the you know, Israelites, and then eventually only the priests could enter. And as the priests would enter the holy place, it was very much like the layout for the design of the tabernacle. And we read in the tabernacle that there was to be this beautiful candelabra called the menorah. And that the priests, one of their duties was to keep it always with oil so that it was constantly burning as an eternal flame, representing really God's presence in the tabernacle. But every time they'd light it for like 40 years, it would go out. For 40 years, the candle that was always to be lit was, you know, you light, and, it, and the candle kept going out. Nor, we read, or and the doors of the temple would open by themselves until Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai rebuked them, saying, Temple, temple, why wilt thou be the alarmer thyself? I know about thee that thou wilt be destroyed, for Zechariah ben Edo has already prophesied concerning thee. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour you. There was something going on about Lebanon and the fact that the temple was built using the cedars of Lebanon that, and the word Lebanon from the Hebrew word Lavan meaning white and purity well and there's another word play Lebanon sounds like the word for incense Lavona and so it's like all these reasons why sometimes you read Lebanon and the rabbis say that means the temple in other words things were going on at the temple according to the Talmud for 40 years before it was destroyed finally in 70 AD that said, this place no, not is haunted, but things aren't working properly. Something's wrong here. So much so that there was concern that is written about even hundreds of years later in the Talmud that there, there seemed to be some signal that the temple sacrifices weren't doing their job. And, and the crimson-colored strap wasn't turning white off in the wilderness as the sacrifice back at the temple was being offered so that it has to bring into question, is atonement being made? Uh, are, is God accepting this atoning sacrifice of the goat on the day of atonement as a whole burnt offering? Maybe he's not. In fact, it was the same rabbi, Yochanan ben Zakkai, who after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, he said, uh, you know, this is not good. If the whole religious system is based on making sacrifices and that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or forgiveness of sin, 
Oh, we can't offer sacrifices anymore. The Romans have destroyed the temple. Oh, what do we do? He made a pronouncement. In the place of sacrifices, God will now accept prayers and good deeds. Prayers, tefillot, and good deeds, mitzvot. You can do good deeds and you can pray and, you know, we can't offer a sacrifice, so do the best you can. And so various traditions arose, traditions that suggest that on this Day of Atonement, the book of Jonah is read because you'll recall that in the book of Jonah, Jonah went to preach that loving message to the Assyrians and said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. It's pretty impressive as a brief sermon in Hebrew, five words. Like, you know, that's it. Full stop. That's the end of the sermon, which maybe you'd like a shorter sermon once in a while, and we're coming toward the end of mine. But five words, not a lot of gospel in that. Not a lot of hope and encouragement, like God will forgive you, and, and come to him and, and experience his forgiveness and get right with none of that. Jonah simply says, in 40 days, your city will be destroyed. But what happens in the midst of this time when Nineveh was going to be taken down in judgment by God, the king of the Ninevites tears his garment. He puts on sackcloth. He humbles himself before, oh, afflicts himself before the Lord. The same concept as the Day of Atonement. And the rabbis say, aha, let's read the book of Jonah because even though we don't have a sacrifice, even though we don't have a temple, let's humble ourselves like the king of Nineveh did. Perhaps God will forgive us. Further, in the place of a goat being offered, according to Leviticus 16, a whole burnt offering, even to this day in the religious community of the Orthodox Jewish community, a chicken will be sacrificed. And the leader of the family will take this chicken and will assemble the family together and will, can we even talk this way in our, you know, uh, with our modern sensibilities that, we like to think of chicken like I'll order number seven on the menu and I don't want to think about how it got there. But the chicken would be, yeah, slaughtered, you know. And then it would be waved around the family several times. You've got to be thinking what happens then. The blood is like slinging around. And the idea is that it is covering and making an atonement. It's not the word kippur, like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it's kapara, this, this idea of a covering that somehow by the prayer goes something like this in Hebrew, may our sins go on this chicken and may the death of the chicken cause us to be covered, something like that. You see, it's also a time period in which for 10 days since the previous fall feast, the Feast of Trumpets, had blown the shofar, had blown this sound of ominous judgment, a warning that the Day of Atonement is coming, 
that many rabbinic traditions have come about that suggest that for 10 days, it's like God is opening the books of judgment. He's determining. He's looking at your life with more scrutiny than other, any other time during the year. I think it's a rabbinic quote that says that God knows as he's looking at your life, he knows who's been naughty or nice. Okay, maybe that's not a rabbinic text, but, but you've heard something like this. He's making a list and checking it twice. He knows who's been naughty or nice. But this same concept of better than any other time in the year, God is looking intently at what kind of person you are and what kind of future you will have. But it's really not about what kind of year. The scripture is really speaking about the importance of the fact that you have or do not have atonement. And this blowing of the shofar, the blowing of this trumpet, begins these special days in the fall of Israel's calendar to sound a, a warning, a war cry, to be a witness to everyone that God really is observing. When we turn to the New Testament scriptures, we see this concept in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, in fact, chapter 9, has a whole section on this special day. This day, which we can read about. Now, even the first covenant had rev regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. Now, even the... Uh, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which there were the lampstand. We talked about the lampstand a moment ago. And the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Further we read, and behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. So lots of priests are going out into this outer area. But then we read in verse 7, but into the second area of the tabernacle, the innermost part, only the high priest enters once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. It was this tabernacle teaching tool that God used for the Israelites to speak of this increasing amount of holiness as you would go closer and closer to the presence of God and the farther and farther away God is from sin. But if you wanted forgiveness and for the holy God of the universe to accept sinners, then you need at one -ment. You need for this one man on one day a year to go into this one place to make atonement. In fact, this is again that which is alluded to in Jonah chapter 3 verse 6 where we read about the king of Nineveh. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. In other words, he humbled himself before the Lord. Again, it's a reminder of the fact that Jesus also, knowing 
that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper, remember the time with his disciples in the upper room, and laid aside his garments, taking a towel, and girded himself about, you recall, putting on the robes of a servant. You see, it is this reminder of what Jesus has done and I'm reminded that the blanks will not somehow fill in as I advance the slide. But perhaps you can note that we do no work at all to receive salvation. You know, the scripture teaches us that it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. That it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And even that faith does not come from you. We can do nothing to achieve God's atonement. Further, we're told that Messiah, Jesus, humbled himself to the point of death and was offered for our transgressions. He is the ultimate satisfying sacrifice. Our high priest sacrificed himself as the ultimate atoning sacrifice for sin removing our sin far from us, very much like the scapegoat, took the sin off into the wilderness, carrying the reproach of the people away from the presence of God. So Jesus is the one who carries our sins away so that they are removed from us. Scripture tells us as far as the east is from the west, they are buried in the depths of the deepest sea. And we are reminded that Messiah laid aside the robes of his glory to make atonement for us. You know, as we could be thinking about our plans for the day, for the week, for the rest of this month, for the, for the year, I'm thinking that on this specific day, which was written about thousands of years ago, and was revealed by God on Mount Sinai, and that you happen to may casually note it as certain events come up that this evening is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. I think it's a little throwback to biblical times to perhaps even challenge us to ask, do you have the atonement that God has come to offer in the person of his son. Have you humbled yourself before God so that you are prepared to receive his atonement, the sacrifice offered by his son? I hope you have. And I know that if you have questions about, wow, are my sins forgiven? Do I have that at-one-ment type of peace and shalom with the God of the universe? Has he accepted me into his presence? I know that any of your elders would be happy to speak with you after the service, as would I, and to clarify for you what Scripture says about how you, by putting your faith in the person of Jesus and his work for you, his atonement made for you, how you can be assured of his gift of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, it is because of the work of your Son on our behalf that we can stand before you in righteousness, clothed in the righteousness, not of our own, but of Christ. As he has taught us to 
humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that you may exalt us in due time. Lord, if there is even one here who has not bowed the knee before you, who has not confessed that Jesus is Lord, who has not called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, who has not asked for you through the atoning work of your Son to give them your salvation, Lord, we pray that today might be a day of salvation. And for those of us who have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved years and years ago, Lord, may our appreciation for your good gift of your Son on our behalf be that much more appreciated. Each day as we walk with you, thanking you, Lord, thank you for your salvation. Thank you that we can be right with you. Thank you that my sins are forgiven, that I'm washed in the blood of Christ. We pray all of these things, thanking you in his name. Amen.